Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's current in the world of romance. Today, you know what we're going to be talking about. It's definitely Taylor Swift and Joe Alwyn, guys. Then it's time for The Love Story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today, we'll be talking about Moulin Rouge, the glittering mess of a jukebox musical that leads us to the conclusion that bohemians, they're gonna boheme. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Mary Fuck Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. Let's just say that sitar really is magic this week. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. And now it's time for This Week in Love. And I think we all know the one love story that has been on everybody's minds this week. After six years, a source close to the couple has announced that Taylor Swift and Joe Allen have broken up. <laughs> <laughs> Naf's giggling like she did it. <laughs> Naf, what's your story? I'm laughing because I realized that there is no way to say this man's last name without sounding like one is saying Allen, but like Alwyn, but like Alwyn. It's Joe. <laughs> and that's that's just one thing I wanted to bring is the conversation. Yeah, it won't be the first name I mess up on this pod and it won't be the last. But I keep practicing saying it to myself too in preparation for this and it just sounds like I'm saying Joe Allen. <laughs> well, it sounds like a baby, a baby yeah. saying Alan, yeah. Maybe that's why they broke up. Because she didn't want to be Taylor Alwyn. <laughs> anyway, so a source close to the couple, which, as we all know, means Taylor on the phone to People magazine or her, her assistant, um, say that differences in their personalities led to... Yeah, who can who can imagine? Led to the breakup that he struggled with her level of fame, which seems slightly disingenuous to me because I do think that as a rising actor, he's already had some level of fame. Joe Allen is not famous. I'm so sorry. Well, he is now. Because of Taylor Swift. It is simply not because of his work that we know who he is. And to be fair, for most of the relationship, it was the pandemic. So they were in a bit of a, a, a bit of a bubble, basically. I thought he got a lot of praise, didn't he, for being sort of like so happy to be Taylor's. Like- oh, I thought you meant for a role. And I was like, I suppose he was OK in The Favourite. <laughs> yeah, this minor role in The Favourite. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's true. He was very supportive, it seems. But then uh, apparently Taylor didn't see them working out in the long run, said one insider, even though they'd been talking about marriage. Uh, and of course, this is coming during her current tour where... Mm. Fans are absolutely reading everything into everything. Swifties ignited. (laughs) For example, it is often cited that she swapped out Invisible String for The One. In my mind, this is just 
a better song. The one is a better song. I really would caution you against saying comments like this. The Swifties will find us. It's only second to the beehive. The Swifties will... If you imply that any one of Taylor Swift's songs is less good than the other one, they are all perfect. They're also... You know what? They're all perfect in their own way. I will just say that I think that the one has particular significance to me. But Invisible String is like a love song and the one is a breakup song. And this is the like the big change on her tours that everybody is just freaking out over. So what do we think? Uh, what are we feeling? So as of now, if I'm as of press time, Taylor herself, neither Taylor nor Joe have personally affirmed that this breakup has happened, but it seems pretty obvious because it's just in the rumor mill. And the source that I had, um, ladygossip.com, <laughs> one of my favorite ever gossip sources, um, is uh, so the weekend that she announced or that this breakup rumor came out was one of the only weekends that Taylor Swift had off from the tour. So this website, Lady Gossip, was saying that is what made them think that there was some credibility to the rumor, that it made sense that, of course, her people would gently break the story when she doesn't have to be out performing for two days. And then Monday, you know, who knows what's going to happen over the weekend. The news cycle changes so quickly. She's back on tour on Monday. And apparently the tour, the the show right after the breakup announcement weekend was kind of glitchy. A few things went badly. So, nothing terrible, of course, but for a perfectionist like Taylor Swift... Every single flaw means something important and huge. And one of the things was that she actually misnamed the opening act. She said it was someone named Gracie and it was someone named... Joe Alwyn. (laughs) It's hard to recover from that. (laughs) I'm actually so upset that that didn't happen. Now I don't want to talk about what really happened, which is just basically that they... They broke up after six years because they're young and they will date many other people like we hopefully all will. It is a little callous to say, but it does give her new material. Well, that's that's what my thought was it uh, was about it was. I mean, I just uh, come out here. I'm a uh, I'm a quasi Swifty. Um, and so I am I'm, I'm aware of what I think is really interesting about her as, as an artist in particular is how much from her own life is sort of like is taken and put into her songs and how much that there's this kind of like dialogue between the songs of Taylor Swift and the life of Taylor Swift. And so I I think it's inevitable that the moment that a a huge breakup like this happens, that suddenly, yeah, she'll have loads of new material and people and people love reading into her songs and stuff like that. And so it's suddenly it's great for people buying her albums. and, And I'm not saying that that's why she did it. Uh, or why they broke up, but there is a there, there is an album called Alwyn Allen <laughs> coming out early twenty twenty four. Heard it here first. Lily Lily Allen's brother Alfie Allen will be on the cover. <laughs> he is now the muse for this whole musical multiverse. I think it is hard to date at her level of fame. And also at her height, you know, tall women often like to date within, I I don't want to overgeneralize here, but often like to date within a certain height range, you know, 
or you know, or the you know, counter argument men have trouble dif- like have trouble with the idea of dating taller women which maybe so she's already like 5'10 and super famous and so 35 right yeah yeah so you know it's, it's it's even though i don't feel bad for her for those reasons um i think she's done amazingly in the dating world considering like the inherent limitations of her lifestyle her height how intimidating she must be and like it is the thing of you know going to be whoever she ends up with will likely be Mr. Taylor Swift you know for the rest of his life. Wow, possible name for the next album as well, <laughs> Mr. Taylor Swift. That would be wonderful. <laughs> Taylor, you are welcome to any slash all of these titles. Because <laughs> that was also what was notable about this relationship. Apparently, was that unlike her previous flames, she was this was very low key. There are some people who genuinely didn't know that she was dating anyone. She seems to have really gone out of her way to not put him in the limelight. And perhaps circumstances were such that, you know, when you are glowing at this rate, you've just got to let your light shine. And Joe Alwyn will just have to keep trying in different miniseries based on Sally Rooney novels. Yeah. <laughs> He's, it's a situation like so many others where it's just a bunch of people trying to do their best. And even though they're super hot and at famous to varying degrees. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily make it more than that. So perhaps this is uh, jumping in the grave of their relationship a little bit too early here, but um, who would you be uh, shipping for Taylor Swift next? Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> this, is, this is great. Okay, for the gossip... I wouldn't be mad if Taylor Swift and Timothee Chalamet got together, especially because... This is what I want. Oh, actually, uh, plot twist in This Week in Love. Did you guys hear that Timothee Chalamet is dating Kylie Jenner? Wow, really? Ugh, it makes me like him so much less. The Shamalama Lama Hive, I'm a member. We are furious. We are not well. We have been going off in the comments. This is unbelievable. So if he's going to have a super high-profile girlfriend... Fuck Kylie Jenner. No, don't. Fuck. No, Timothy, don't. Stop. Fuck stop fucking her. Stop fucking. Taylor. I mean, that would be phenomenal, right? Like, And also, I think he could really help her with her fashion. I think he could finally help her understand how to do her hair correctly. I just think Timothy could be wonderful for her as an asset. Like, he provides so much for her. And then she will provide lovely, winsome songs that he can star in the music videos of. I love her hair. Why don't you like her hair? I think it always, when it's not in a video, when she's just out on the red carpet, she never seems to understand how to tie it up or down. It always looks too dry and too chemically for me. Mm, it's tough, though, when you're, because she's both straightening. I, I really, really empathize with her on this because she's both straightening and highlighting. She's also very rich, Rachel. I don't sympathize with her. <laughs> she's ex- like not just very rich. She is so wealthy. She could get a stylist in her room for every hour of every day and she would still have generational wealth. Taylor, do better. Marry Timothee and he can help you. Look at his hair. <laughs> it's gorgeous. What about it? Is, this isn't uh, an opportunity for Jake Gyllenhaal to come back into the picture. No, no, no. Jake Gyllenhaal is weird. Jake, there was that, remember there was that whole story about the writer the production assistant on one of his plays and how he kind of fucked with her mind. Oh, no. Yeah, no. Jake is, if not on the bad list, he's on the gray zone list. Well, after what he did to Taylor in that song, the, uh, all too well. Do you know about that? I can't actually think of a single celebrity right now. Um, my mind has gone totally blank. Weirdly, the only celebrity coming to my mind is Salman Rushdie. Which is, um, <laughs> well, I can. I, all I want to say is Idris Elba because I think they'd just be stunning together. But he's like wife guy, right? Like he's super wife guy, which is part of why I love him. That's it. You exactly. know. Hold on, we just went straight over Salman Rushdie. It's a uh, possible. 
Look, I've said what I have to say. <laughs> yeah, I said what I said <laughs> about Salman Rushdie. <laughs> Plus, come on, she and you know her texts are just like miles beyond. You look hot. <laughs> oh, I just. What if? What if? It's Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran, and the basic white celebrity bitch couple comes to the fore. No, he does nothing for me. I mean, I'm sure there's already a lot of, like, slash fiction on the internet about Taylor Swift and Ed Sheeran. They've had the opportunity. Ed Sheeran, to me, is beyond nothing. I literally cannot retain... Beyond nothing. Beyond nothing. He is so... He's a blank page to take... Oh, no, blank space. That's a Taylor Swift song. He just has nothing to contribute, in my humble opinion. He has a cartoon lion tattooed on his chest. Ew, ew. He was one of the worst parts of that movie that should have been done better about the Beatles. But he and Taylor Swift have always been so pleased with themselves as famous friends that I can kind of see them having a queasy, truly nausea-inducing relationship where they just go out in public and are smug together. And he looks like he works at the Olive Garden and she's wearing another stupendous gown. I don't want that. I don't want that for her. But we are living in the worst timeline, right? It has been confirmed on so many occasions. What makes you think that we're not going to dodge this bullet? Mm, mm. Okay, what about what about just going outside of that celebrity orbit and saying like Jonathan Safran Foyer? <laughs> I like this this the, the the writer track that we're on here. I like this too. <laughs> Let's ship Taylor Swift with one of our friends. <laughs> I mean, definitely Jonathan Safran Foyer making a a, a a play for Taylor Swift would be great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would go see it and it'd be terrible. Oh, no, I meant like, you know, trying to, de- like sending her loads of uh, embarrassing texts and messages, which somehow, you know, just repeating the whole... I thought you meant like writing a play. I mean, that also would be great. <laughs> I, I want a play where she she does all of the makeup and bodysuit from Cats again, but in a, <laughs> in a foyer-esque context. This is my dream, people. Um, okay, so with that said, au revoir, Owen. <laughs> we have no way of uh, hooking you up with these people, Taylor, but I'm sure you have your ways. So um, in the meantime, um, it's Harry. Yeah, I did think about that, but come on, Meghan Markle is best timeline for him, for sure. I agree. They were made for each other. But imagine the gossip, though. I mean, just imagine. It would be a he- Can't imagine it. We are out of time. Um, he does have like two more books to write, <laughs> and I think he's covered everything we want to know already. That's true. And what a what a crescendo of a trilogy if it ends with and then that's how I met Taylor. <laughs> yeah, uh, albums. Oh. And I'll tell you what, Prin- oh. Prince Harry stands and Swifties. I think that that Venn diagram looks more like a circle. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you heard it here first. <laughs> you no longer have to worry about uh, last names, Taylor, because you're about to get a title. <laughs> and now it's time for the love story. This week, we'll be talking about a movie that we all love and thoroughly recommend to everybody it is moulin rouge exclamation mark from the one and only baz lorman our premier cineast uh that exclamation part mark by the way is in the title not our editor 
oh, no, no. He wanted you to understand. I think he was afraid that you might see it and go, Moulin Rouge. Mm, I don't know. That sounds like it could be documentary. Moulin Rouge question mark. Right. Yeah, exactly. Then it's confusing. It's a French name. Exclamation mark, though. You're going, oh, it's a party. Okay. Okay. Right. Also, punctuation for him is a big thing. It's like the Romeo plus Julia. Exactly. Exactly. Elvis, no punctuation mark because he doesn't need it. He's an artist with no periods, no questions. Right. And you put the, you could put the ellipses, but then I think everybody's like, Elvis died on the toilet. Like, that's how you finish that sentence. <laughs> Elvis still alive, for example. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this movie comes out in 2001, and it actually opened the Cannes Film Festival of that year. Um, and it was a huge fucking deal that it did that. So we grew up in a garbage time. I just want to point that out. Truly, garbage time. We really did. So this was... So 20th Century Fox had apparently unofficially been boycotting the Cannes Film Festival because they were like, oh, they only like boring auteur films. We're here for entertainment. So it was a big fucking deal. They did it. It was the event that everyone wanted to attend at the film festival that year. People were bartering for tickets. Over a thousand people were invited. It was a huge hit. And I just want to read a little bit from a Roger Ebert article about the parties that followed. Like I, I super fucking regret not being famous in 2001 because <laughs> now I'm so famous um, <laughs> not being able to also be being famous in 2001 does not seem like a great uh, scenario to be in that's very true that that is very very true um, so Roger Ebert says there has never been a can party like it and take it from me I've seen plenty including the bash on Roman Polanski's pirate ship a comment that has not aged well um, <laughs> <laughs> the bash by which he means when we bashed that girl over the head exactly. and threw her off the side <laughs> that is dark. We're keeping that in. We're definitely not Scorpio that. energy. <laughs> Nicole Kidman reigned like the queen of cinema over a celebration inside a series of vast circus tents that suggested the Moulin Rouge nightclub in Paris with authentically worn floorboards, <laughs> lush velvet walls. Can you imagine the intern who was told, now make the floorboards worn, but they must still be structurally sound. God forbid Nicole Kidman fucking, you know, dives down through this. <laughs> Um, <laughs> the intern who has to spend three hours with the steel wool. <laughs> I was just imagining walking back and forth a lot. Like. Um, the movie struck just the right note to kick off this forty fifth, this fifty fourth festival. The post screening buzz, confirmed by most of the reviews Thursday morning, was that Moulin Rouge hit a home run. So reviews, and there's two exclamation points in that sentence. Exactly. So Ken fucking loved it, right? But let's get into what this movie is actually about, right? So we've we've built it up. We've told you that the French loved it. The Americans loved it. Roger Ebert goddamn lost his mind over it. And just for context, so for those who don't know, this is the third in Baz Luhrmann's Red Curtain trilogy. So the first one is Strictly Ballroom. Second one is Romeo and Juliet. And according to Baz Luhrmann, which I feel like is a little bit of him retroactively explaining himself, he's like, yeah, each of these movies celebrates, you know, one, one part of live theater. So Strictly Ballroom, obviously dance, Romeo and Juliet, in his own words, that celebrates words and poetry. <laughs> and of course, Moulin Rouge is all about spectacles. So somebody got a first in English. Uh, absolutely. Well, Buzz, I don't know. Words and poetry. Please don't get it fucked up. <laughs> Sometimes you can have poetry without words. Buzz knows this. Um, I think that's called dancing. Okay. Uh, strictly ballroom. Exactly. It's, it's a circle. It's a circle of life. <laughs> oh. By the time your brain explodes. Exactly. <laughs> So this movie is set in 1900 Paris, and we meet Hugh McGregor, who plays a young, penniless writer named Christian. 
definitely just a random name that they picked out of nowhere. Definitely not supposed to be symbolic of any sort of innocence or... Right. And he's Scottish. The only point there was that uh, Christian is not a particular... It's a very American name to me. It does not feel Scottish really at all. Not at all. I mean, if, if that's the one piece of inauthenticity that you're picking up on in this movie. <laughs> this this could be a longer conversation than I've budgeted for. So he comes, he lives in this garret in Paris. He meets all of these bohemians. So being, he, being a bohemian is a big fucking deal in this movie. Yeah, that's not bohemians. That's not your interpretation of what they are. They are self-declared bohemian. That's exactly it. As in, not from bohemia, but uh, the the other more annoying word. That's it. I was going to say annoying. I feel like it's like self-identifying as a hipster. It's like, if you have to say it, are you? Exactly. Were you? And the bohemians espouse a point of view that celebrates truth, beauty, freedom, and above all, love. Christian is obsessed with love. He, from the very beginning, right? So if they self-declare as bohemians, Christian declares himself as a lover of love. It's like, love is the most important thing. He says that at least four times in a movie that feels like it was four and a half hours long. It is a little over two hours for those who might be worried. And so he joins up with the bohemians and they tell him, oh, we want you to help us write a movie called Spectacular Spectacular, sorry, a show. Because the thing about Christian in this movie, and I need you to pay attention because it's very important. He can only really express his thoughts in 20th century pop songs. It's like a kind of uh, clinical affliction almost. (laughs) There's full on instrumentation that comes up behind him when he sings and speaks these songs. Imagine, I want you to think about going to your favorite cafe and you open your mouth to order a latte and what comes out is like Lady Marmalade, right? And then you close your mouth and the person in front of you is like, whoa, did you just make that up? Um, that happens to Christian. Which is why they think he's a great writer. Exactly. So they let, so they actually fire the old playwright and they tell him, you can take over. You're so fucking good. Because he sings them a part of uh, Sound of Music. As in, the hills come alive with the sound of music. They all they all lose it. And and do you remember the scene before that? Is them being like, the hills uh, clang alive? The hills, oh, what happens on the hills? The hills chime along a ding dong. And then he's like, the hills come alive. And the music comes on, the instruments, and no one's playing an instrument. I mean, they must have, they, I mean, 1900 Paris, they've lived through so much shit. They've lived through plagues, they've lived through warfare. And then this you know, young goat herd of a man comes along and just sings and sings his heart out in these two minute, 54 second, you know, sections. It's a revolution. And so they're like, okay, great. Which they also don't hesitate to use. Oh yeah, they call themselves Children of the Revolution. Yes, you will be hearing the song in this movie. This movie is a jukebox musical, jukebox musical, in that I think there are over 70 pop songs that are used throughout this movie. It's a nightmare. (laughs) There are only four pages of the script that actually aren't based on... Uh, actual songs from the 70s. And I should say also that about 38 of those 71 songs are different versions of Your Song by Sir Elton John. <laughs> like, <laughs> that that song is rung dry. And I don't even think we hear every single part of it. And yet they keep going back to this fucking song. Anyway, so the Bohemians say, we're going to introduce you to Satine, who is our star courtesan at the Moulin Rouge, the nightclub that everybody goes to in Montmartre, right? And Montmartre in this movie is basically hell, right? Like, Satan lives around the corner. Oh my god, Satine, Satan? <gasps> Did you guys get that? Christian and Satine? Oh my god. This is an on-air <laughs> epiphany. You guys, sometimes things are too dumb for people to interpret them. It's uh, you, you think, no, it couldn't possibly be. Uh, but it is. I'm trying to work out what it would even mean if that 
was what they were trying to make. Because they literally walk through like the gates to Montmartre that's like a gaping mouth of hell. So did you guys know that one of the, apparently one of the influences for this movie is the myth Orpheus and Eurydice? I did not know. So in that, so the Moulin Rouge. I can't imagine this movie having any influence. It has so many and I can't wait to tell you all of them. But in that, but in that, if we take that as being a source text, source text, listen, listen to us. We have lost our minds. Stop listening. Okay. Going back to the Ur-text of Orpheus and Eurydice. Um, So if Moulin Rouge symbolizes hell and Nicole Kidman is Satine Satan and she often dresses in red, then Hugh McGregor Christian is the one who's coming back to try to save her with his, you know, medley of pop songs. But then she dies. So he fails, much like in the original myth. So Moulin Rouge is hell. Paris Montmartre is also hell. Wherever Christian comes from, unspecified in the movie, is heaven. Uh, Scotland. He's also living over the road. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. So, yeah, so that's, so we figured it out. That's the point of that. She is living in hell, which is also uh, monitored by Jim Broadbent, who plays an impresario, who is her friend slash her captor. And basically, Christian and Satine fall in love for no fucking reason. We, uh, there, it just doesn't make sense. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. He sings part of your song as Nicole Kidman is literally on the ground in her little bordello, yapping like a dog, trying to convince him to have sex with her. And then her mouth drops open when he comes out with your song. And she is looking at him like, I just came 15 times and I've I've never done a love like this before. And that's it. It's on. They're fucking. They love it. Except that she has to fall in love with the Duke because the Moulin Rouge is losing money. They're about to go bankrupt and she wants to be a real actress she doesn't want to be a Corzan anymore and as you pointed out Rachel apparently you could only be an actress in the Moulin Rouge Nicole Kidman has never auditioned for anybody else <laughs> there's nothing else it's going never on crossed her mind she must stay and renovate this theater also I really feel like they were trying to do something with ratings by using the word courtesan because courtesan to me is like somebody at court who like a noble sleeps with, he's like, it's like a noble's mistress. Courtesan is not just like sex worker, which is what this seems to imply. Exactly. Unless she's um, at, at some point, someone calls her a can-can girl. Perhaps that's how she sets herself apart from the other dancers. Because as we also noted, every other person in, who works at the Moulin Rouge looks like fucking trash. Their faces are smudged with dirt. At some point I kept asking, who are these street urchins? Apparently they are Satine's colleagues. And it, but also, why is Satine the only one that you can fuck? Because she's a courtesan, Rachel. We just, we just, <laughs> that's No, I, I know, but it just seems like that would be the inverse relationship. Well, also, it might just be that she's the only one who looks really, really pretty. And so maybe she's the only one that people are like, oh, I want to fuck her because. Uh, and would give you money for that. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. Guys, did you know it's hard to be a woman? Uh, that's another that's another podcast. <laughs> um, but they, yeah, so they fall in love, except we find out very early on. Actually, no. The first scene we find out that Satine is dead. Oh, yes. Yeah. But, but the, the rest of the film is told in flash. Exactly. Because uh, we forget Christian, who's a writer, is writing the greatest love story of all time, Moulin Rouge, the movie we're watching now. Baz Luhrmann, genius. And so he's typing. Okay, he is typing the words that we are hearing in the movie, which is so fucking stupid. If I was a sculptor, but then again. And these songs do seem so shoehorned in. I do have to say at one point, he's literally staring at Nicole Kidman's character. And he says, with your eyes, I can't, I can't remember if they're green or they're blue. And it's like, but you're looking at them. <laughs> 
So like, I can't tell if they're green or they're blue. That's fine. I can't remember what? No sense. I'm thinking maybe they got that song for free and the other ones had like limited use writers. We have to assume that Sir Elton John and Baz Luhrmann are besties. They summer together because he really let him run like ramshot over this big hit of his. And so Satine dies of a disease called consumption or tuberculosis, which as we know, as we found out, movie consumption kills you within two to five days. Right. There's no no coming back from movie consumption. Movie consumption also makes you look very, very pale, very, very red-lipped, and very, very angular. So it's perfect for Hollywood. Um, And Nicole Kidman is constantly coughing into a handkerchief. I'm sorry, not constantly. Whenever she's dancing and singing, she's absolutely fine. (laughs) She's belting out those high notes. She only gets sick at the very end of a song or when Ian McGregor gets too close to her, which actually now I'm thinking big literal red flag that he's not the one for you. I think we only see them kiss once and there are no, there's no nudity in this film, people. No. Despite uh, your hopes. No, not, no, no, no. There's one scene that's too short for my, in my opinion, where Ian McGregor is shirtless with only suspenders. Right. We only see him from the back. Okay, I I missed that. I must have blinked. I didn't miss it. I would have paused if we were watching it together. But uh, It's not going to earn you your NC-17 rating. <laughs> And so Nicole Kidman does die. There's a lot of like back and forth because the Duke was supposed to invest in the theater, wants to have her as his own. He's a little bit gollumy about it. She doesn't like him. Hijinks ensue, question mark. And she dies. Uh, But not before they do a big Bollywood inspired musical show called Spectacular Spectacular. That is terrible. Um, But everyone in the audience lives for it, which I have to assume must be because after years of warfare and disease and starvation anything looks good after maybe it's all that lead paint yes i think so um i was around at the time yeah because also who is going to come to the moulin rouge in their little tuxedo get really you know excited to be there like there there aren't even there must be porn magazines i don't know there are no porn films certainly there are like slides of naked ladies because anytime humanity invents a new technology the first thing we do is see if you can put naked ladies on Mm -hmm. it um but so they're like, okay, no, this is the best version that we have of, you know, this is the closest thing we have to a porn film. And then they sit down and they're just watching a show in which, like, two people kind of fall in love, clothes are on for the, for the entire... But it's also really confusing because they have one show, a show that makes no sense already because they pretended it was a show when they were trying to cover up for why Uma McGregor was lying on top of Nicole Kidman for the Duke. I'm not joking. These are plot points, okay? They have a whole musical number. They improvise this whole show. They decide not to edit it. They just put on that show with all the money the Duke is giving them. And then Ewan McGregor crashes the show just to tell Nicole Kidman, by the way, I'm so over you and I don't believe in love anymore. He cries. He storms off the stage. Jim Broadbent, bless him. Oscar winner of this year, by the way, 2001, for another movie, not this one, (laughs) tries to pretend that everything is fine. He's like, oh, yes, that's the poor sitar player. I'm the evil Maharaja, and now you're going to fall in love with me. Then Nicole Kidman sings another song that's not in the musical just to show Ian McGregor that she loves him. Lautrec falls through the ceiling. Oh, yeah, Toulouse-Lautrec, I don't know if you've mentioned it yet, is a a key character in this movie, as in the artist Toulouse-Lautrec. Oh, my God. John Leguizamo plays him. It's not worth talking about the performance. Let's just move right along. Um, but he comes down and he says something stupid. And then Hugh McGregor and Nicole Kidman sing a duet together. Again, not in the show. The audience is right there with them. They're captivated. Kern comes down. Nicole Kidman dies. The audience claps. Uproars. Like they, they're just waiting for the curtains to open again so they can all come out and do their bows. 
that is the movie that we watched. We did, and you watched it twice. But, uh, Naf, what's the moral? If you could, I mean, I don't know. It's difficult to interpret what the moral is that they want you to get out of it. But if, if you had to have a stab at it, if, if, if you had one sentence to take away. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm spitballing here. I'm really, you took me off guard here. But think back to what they say at least more than 78 times. Do you think it's something along the lines of the greatest thing you'll ever learn is to love and be loved in return? Do you think? Yes. It feels right. It feels right. Audience, they say this line every single fucking scene, okay? And one of the most annoying things about To Lose the Trek in this movie is that he can't remember that line. Honestly, that's one of the running bits of this movie is him being like, ooh, 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 what was it? Ooh, what was it? What was it? What was it? Idiot. Just memorize it. What are you doing? Why are you in the show? But then he does. Then there's a there's a moment where he falls through yep. the he canopy and the finally remembers the line. A triumph. <laughs> but I think, as you pointed out, which makes it even more annoying, is that it's the it's the epigraph of the movie as well. That's what you get at the beginning of the movie, and then I think we because we 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 watched this one together, um, and as we were watching it, we were sort of talking about how there's almost nothing less classy in writing than referencing the epigraph of your book or movie in the actual movie itself or in the actual story, and to do it seventy eight times <laughs> is. I, I guess they weren't going for classy. <laughs> I know. I think that can safely be inferred. <laughs> so before we get into the actual love story, what did you guys think of this movie? I saw it as a teenager. And even then I was like, this story is flimsy as shit. Like there is nothing here. Like you really get the sense that a few of the scenes where Nicole Kidman's character is like, I want to be an actress. We're added in post-production because audiences were probably just like what she's, she literally just is there, like moved around as an object and like gives a little like every now and again to, to illustrate her dyingness. And, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but on the big screen, you this there is so much spectacle. We were watching it on my tiny laptop, and I really feel like the the sound and the colors and everything were just so muted that like that's what was worth paying, you know, the ticket price for back in the day. And it's unless they do a re-release on the big screens, it's not worth re-watching. It's really claustrophobic feeling on a small screen because it is because Baz Luhrmann does it's. A jump cut, jump cut, jump cut. Like there's the camera never stays on one person for more than five seconds, except for like these rare exceptions that are also not tied to the plot. It's it's really dizzying. Do you know what they're tied to? They're tied to the beats of the songs. Um, and a lot of the songs are very fast. So like Chris, you were saying at some point that you felt nauseated. Uh, I mean, yes, but not because of the uh, the sort of speed of the jump cut, but I like literally feeling nauseated by how bad it was. <laughs> Well, actually, I want to, first of all, I want to do a quick defense of the movie. Oh, don't worry. Oh, no, we must defend this movie. I'm not done talking about that. that I think, first of all, like the set design is in parts fantastic. uh, And particularly the the aesthetic of the big party scenes is great. And I think uh, he actually, Baz Luhrmann does a really good job of replicating the famous images of the Moulin Rouge from the Toulouse the Trek painting. So I think that the aesthetic, there's a huge amount of talent and a good eye for detail, which has gone into this to create this sense of you being there, even on the tiny screen. And I think that works really well. Uh, here's a slightly more controversial opinion. 
I actually think that the story is potentially quite good. We have different ideas, like different opinions on what we want out of movie story. Okay, well, hold on, just hear me out. I think it has, um, I don't think that the script is particularly good, and I don't think that the way that it's executed is good, but I think that there's this, like, fabulistic quality to it, which is very simple. I mean, I guess it's based on the myth of Orpheus and Eurydice, which I am not sure about. But the, that that basic idea of the the sort of the outside penniless artist uh going in and there's this um the the woman who he has to save somehow from the circumstance that she's in and she is supposed to be being getting married to this other guy the duke and there are you know I don't think marriage is mentioned oh yeah okay well she's supposed to be uh, having sex with the duke I guess and there are circumstances kind of going away from it and yeah I I think that the bare bones of that as a as a story are quite good. Uh, and then finally, there was that one quite funny scene when Ewan McGregor first meets Nicole Kidman, uh, and she she thinks that she doesn't know who Ewan McGregor is. She believes him to be the Duke who she's being paid to sleep with, and so she's desperately trying to seduce him. Well, he thinks he's just there to try and pitch his play and read some poetry. Um, and that's quite, it's, it's a classic um, you know, misunderstanding of roles farce. And it is quite funny in a, like a kind of childish, uh, simple, simplistic way, but it's quite good. What I did not like about the film was everything. <laughs> <laughs> we go on though, can I ask Rachel, you were saying that we have different, that you guys have maybe different ideas of what you look for in movie it, was it just like in, in terms of like love stories on movies? This came up, uh, yes, this came up in an, another discussion we did on a different pod. I don't remember which episode, but where Chris was saying sometimes it's just enough to have two hot people mm-hmm. and just like assume that they're falling oh, in love. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that so one of the things which is questionable about, questionable about the story is that there's no explanation as to why Ewan McGregor likes Nicole Kidman or vice versa, really, apart from they're just really attracted to one another. And yeah, I think that for this movie, I I didn't really buy it. I think I did want a little bit more than they gave me. But That's good. I don't have to sit you down and make you read the Chinatown screenplay. <laughs> Uh, in general, though, I do stand by that. If because movies only have a limited amount of time to get the information that they want across, and and sometimes it is convenient shorthand because there is. I think I said this the last time as well, but th- there actually often is a, a little bit of a mystery as to why two people fall for one another, and and so you can play with that ineffable attraction that exists between two people and say well that's just how it was just love at first sight which i think does exist in reality and so i'm not concerned by that in storytelling terms all the time i think you just have to infer so much here that uh you end up uh, working just so far away from the, the text in that like you're like okay well he's maybe like a country mouse He's, he definitely seems like a virgin, you know, coming oh, to the thing. city for the first time. <laughs> Jim Broadbent sings that song. I'm sorry. Keep going. <laughs> oh, my God. That's true. Wrapped in wrapped in lace. He looks like a big baby. <laughs> with, with a mustache. It's disturbing. It's disturbing. Like a virgin. <laughs> with maybe a little less pep, actually. 
Um, so maybe that like so he she's just the first hot woman he's ever seen. Uh-huh. Maybe that's that's the appeal. But for her, it's like you're surrounded by a bunch of these other bohemians, and it, really, it's my song, it's your song, our song, whatever it's fucking called. Yeah. So this so I I this is where I think movie love stories get really complicated because actually I agree with you, Chris, that if two. Because what you're really looking for, I think, is believing in the chemistry between the two actors, right? Like, if you believe that the two people in front of you are absolutely obsessed with each other, I really think, with some, maybe a few exceptions, most people were just like so excited and we believe it immediately, right? Like, that is the magic of the big screen. The problem, of course, is that if there isn't that chemistry, then everything kind of falls apart. And actually, sometimes, even when movies do a pretty good job of explaining to you why these two leads should be in love, again, if you're not getting that, you're not going to believe it, right? You're going to feel like, oh, of course, they just kind of wrote this. They orchestrated it. It will feel really written and not at all like it's being lived. And weirdly, Hugh McGregor and Nicole Kidman, who seem to have had a great... So everyone had a great time making this movie. Everyone loved being there. Even Nicole Kidman, who broke her ribs and twisted her ankle um, and... Well, she does have to faint like six times. Right. And also she was obsessed with having um, Vivian Lee's waist size for this movie. So she kept making them like... But Vivian Lee was like 5'3". She was small. But Nicole what... Kidman's like 5'10". They kept cinching her corset so tight that finally some of her ribs broke. Yeah. And this is from... And this is according to her. So this is not even like hearsay. So there's that. Um, but but so they had a great time. Like she and you and Gregor obviously really enjoyed working with each other. Like I I saw this really cute like behind the scenes, like when they're doing their dances together. And again, they're having a really great time, but it really does seem like two good friends. And in the movie, you just I just didn't feel it. I just did not believe that these two people were in love, which is also not helped by the fact that when they sing to each other, <laughs> they are screaming at each other they are their noses are almost touching and they're just scream shouting these pop songs at each other so whenever the other person isn't singing and they're just listening nicole kibben in particular just looks like she's kind of you know looking to the distance being like oh, i can't wait to get this corset off but we're just looking at you mcgregor being like he's nice you know it's just it's really hard for them to seem to be able to react when the other person is singing and so yeah there's not much heat between them right like there's not much chemistry I think so just like kind of globally and this goes back to what Rachel was saying about the pop songs feeling really shoehorned in and this is also why I found it so cringe basically yeah because the songs don't directly speak to anything which is happening between the characters except Roxanne which we loved yeah and there's the show must go on by Queen as well but I didn't like that version of it it just felt kind of like a downer I didn't like it, but it did seem to fit the. It, it fits the script, but everything else, it's just like, yeah, they're, they're in a, able to articulate their feelings towards one another because literally all they've got is your song by Elton John to do it. It's like a real acting challenge. And your song, honestly, the only point is I wrote you a song. And it makes a lot more sense when you put it in the context of Elton John's life. And you're like, maybe, the, you know, he was closeted at the time when he wrote it. He was writing it for a lover who's like, why are you always singing to other people? You can project a lot on for Elton John. But then you take it out of context and it's just like, I wrote you a song. Yeah, exactly. Uh, There's also the line about him sitting on a roof in that song, which I think is quite important in Moulin Rouge because there is a lot of scenes set on rooftops. Oh my God, which is also really important because sometimes the moon joins in to the singing. There's a But not always. Not always, but there's a face in the moon who sometimes sings along with you. It's the best. It's very mighty bush. Um, So I actually want to step into and say... I, as as we've said, I've watched this movie now twice in less than 48 hours. <laughs> Again, I am not well. 
and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like you saw me, my eyes were glued. I made you pause when I got up to leave. I just saw it. I know the whole thing. But it's but it's also because I realized that this movie is not for amateurs. Let me explain. So I was born, raised, and have really raised myself on a strict diet of soap operas, right? I this but this is a marathon, right? This is like, you know, I've been watching soap operas my whole life. I can take this, right? And even for me, sometimes it was a little bit too hard to handle. But if you're new to this, uh, audience, listeners, take in short sprints, right? Like 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. Don't overexert yourself. Start with the trailer. 128 minutes of this. You got you to gotta build to that. I mean, by the time you get to that moon, you might collapse. You might get consumption. So be careful. This is, we, we're going to put a, a kind of an adult warning on this one, really. Like, uh, so you're saying it would work better as one of those Netflix series where every episode is 10 minutes long. Or a perfume ad, as you pointed out. Yes, yeah. It's, it, its aesthetic is strongly perfume. Strongly, aggressively perfume ad. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say that, you know, in terms of the verisimilitude, which is close to zero, I would actually have hoped, given Kidman's broken ribs, that she could have had, like, shown a little more trouble breathing or something that would indicate <laughs> illness. It's, her her performance is really weird in this movie, I gotta be honest. I know that it's always on these, you know, best of Nicole Kidman performance lists. I don't know, I, what, did, what, did, what do the two of you think? It's very phoned in. It's very, um, she also doesn't seem to have a strong singing voice. A lot of the time, the scoring drowns her out. And you're going, oh, that's because Ewan McGregor does have a good singing voice. Yes, yeah. yeah, I was surprised at the time. Apparently, she was really intimidated by that, actually. When she heard him sing, she was like, fuck. <laughs> and she sounds fine. And she can talk her way through some of them. And uh, it's... I it, I just really feel like fine. You get some good stuff, but it's mostly the directing actually. Like you get some shots of like her lashes, you know, on her cheek and you know, they're lovely shots, but it's the movie treats her like an object and that's kind of as it, it's partly the role and I think it would also just be really hard to work up a lot of enthusiasm for that kind of role. I didn't. I don't think I had strong opinions I, on her performance one way or the other. I thought there were some bits of it which I think she did pretty well. Like as to go back to that hilarious scene that I mentioned, in which they're misunderstanding one another, in which she's um, doing her absolute best to be sexy and doing all this like deep breathing on the bed and not quite getting it. I thought that was a pretty good, well acted scene. Um, so and you never think of Nicole Kidman as a comedian. No, it's true. And also notably, one of the few scenes where people talk to each other for an extended period of time, which I think also really helps the acting. It's it, I I wonder why, you know, they're able to really get into their characters when they have actual fucking words to say to each other and they're connecting as opposed to pretending to be singing along to yeah another pop song. Um, but it's true. I actually would argue that no one's really giving their best performance in this movie. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Jim Broadbent, I am sorry. This is an erotic house. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly a line that he says. It's true. Jim Broadbent and the actor who plays the Duke, I think his name is Richard Roxburgh, uh, something like that. Uh, he's actually, he is genuinely really good. He's very good in action. Yeah, he is very good. But I think that for the two of them, they're also just really enthusiastic. And that's what you can say about every actor here, except for Nicole Kidman, who might just be dying of her corsets. Um, everyone else is giving it 110%. So it's not 
you don't feel like anyone really is bored. And that, at least for me, really carries me along as well, even in the most, because there are lots of plot holes in this movie. There are lots of things that happen that don't need to happen. This movie could have been a two minute uh, short, basically, uh, but they need to kind of shoehorn in all of these, you know, different conflicts. And oh my God, the theater and oh, she's dying. We have to. So yes, there's all of that as well. I think that the real love story here is if you are in love with any of the actors yourself. Like I think Ewan McGregor is so hot in this movie. So for me, it's like, Oh, yeah, it's me and Ewan. This is our love story. Um, but I just don't think you can really get behind any of the love stories that are actually being depicted on screen. And unlike most of the stories that we analyze on this pod, you can't even say that it's a love story with Paris. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that will not hold up here. Not at all. I mean, despite the 50 uh, wide shots that we have of the city as a whole. Which in this movie is maybe like five inches long. Uh, oh, also acoustics in Paris used to be stellar because people will be down in the street. Someone else will be on like a seventh floor building. They'll whisper something and the person on the street goes, oh, my God, it's human. <laughs> He's calling me. You can throw a gun out the door of the Moulin Rouge and it hits the Eiffel Tower. And it really does hit it. It's like, cling, 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 <laughs> as it kind of, you know, goes down all those, la that lattice work. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's a tiny toy store version of the city. Yeah. Basically, you have to suspend disbelief about every aspect of this film to buy into it, by which point, what are you even doing? <laughs> I mean, there are some aesthetics in it which do remind me a little bit of at least the characters that you can sometimes see still kind of rocking up in modern day Montmartre, I would say. You get this sort of like handful of eccentrics uh, who you see like one or two and they're kind of all clumped together and they're real like Montmartre's. And maybe they've just all seen Moulin Rouge and they're dressing a little <laughs> bit like... This. It's a real chicken in the egg situation at this point. <laughs> I suppose there you, there is an argument to be made that this is also a story about real artistry coming up against, you know, the big money machine that actually funds the art that's being made. So the Bohemians have this whole thing about their show is espousing and, you know, really promoting their views. And then the money hungry Duke is like, no, 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 the the courtesan is going to fall in love with the Maharaja and not with the poor sitar player. And then. Uh, Lautrec goes, oh, but that goes against all Bohemian values. And he goes, I am i don't give a shit about your dogma. He does say dogma. He doesn't say I don't give a shit. He's a duke. Um, I'm just, I'm, I'm rabble from Boston, so I can say it. <laughs> I think in the words of uh, you're wrong about it was capitalism all along yeah, exactly. is definitely one theory for this film. But I don't know. I really feel like it, when you get down to it, the actual theory is the, the greatest thing you'll ever learn <laughs> is just to love and be loved in return. Yeah. And also this movie is just it's it's a love song and love story about excess, right? There is I mean it, as Chris was saying, the party scenes, it's so splashy, it's so colorful. There are paillettes everywhere, there's glitter everywhere. There's no level of tackiness that is not achieved and then immediately superseded by the next moment, the next scene, the next character who's introduced. And it's like, what are they even using the Duke's money on? We decided it had to be up because because everything was already so lavish. And then like the big set, like that came from the elephant, that heart in the background. So I think the, the NAF theory that came up during the film, maybe it was Chris's, was that they used the money for the canapes during rehearsals, that was <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which, which is the correct. Uh, they do have they do have extensive canapes during one of their rehearsals. Right. 
Lotrek puts them all into like a boat shape. It actually looked disgusting. I was like, all of that's going to be soggy and you are, you're not moving fast enough to them. You're not moving. And they're having sex on that couch. Lotrek, get away. <laughs> they really are. Uh, it's weird. Um, <laughs> God, Bahamians going to Bahame, I suppose. <laughs> that was the working title for this production. So I was reading something that posits a theory that this movie is, it's impossible for it to be outdated because of how weird its conception was, right? It was already such an anachronistic, weird idea to do a jukebox, jukebox musical. I'm going to stop saying that. I don't know how to say it. Um, in 2001, there was really no guarantee that it was going to make as much money as it did. And there's, I mean, and this movie was pretty critically acclaimed as well. Of course, there were critics who were like, it's all the stuff that we're saying. But a lot of people were super won over by this movie. So it, it really, as as Robert, uh, as Ebert said, like this was a home run for, an all, for all intents and purposes globally. And so the review that I or the this article that I read called it future proofed. Um, so it's and quote it's so determinedly out of time in the first place that it's kind of impossible for it to fall out of time, right? Like it's always been bizarre. But you could say that th- about the the worst student movie as well. This is this is timeless. It's future proof because it's so bad. But I, I want to stand up and go kind of like complete completely contradict that i think this movie is super early 2000s in its in its aesthetic and the songs that they choose uh, in its sort of still slightly doughy-eyed uh, optimism that it has i mean i'm talking from the future to moulin rouge and saying i think you've dated a little bit <laughs> and that unabashed romanticism is i think if you love this movie and again watching interviews with the actors that was, they, I don't know if they're being genuine, but they kind of seem like they are. Ewan McGregor has not been media trained at this point. He's, he's very, he's a cute pup. He's straight off the back of train spotting <laughs> into this. He really, at some point he's just like, it's just so great. I get to be, he's like, I get to be in a movie with Nicole Kidman. And that's like, oh, you're so cute. Um, but I think that is what people respond to, right? It is, it's just, it's, it's so corny. It's really not. It, it tells you exactly what it, it wants to talk about, which is love and how cool it is. And that's it. So if you're into that, if you're just like, yeah, like, fuck all this jaded modernism. Like, I want authenticity. I want, you know, honest, just acceptance of all the beautiful things. Then maybe. Yeah, it's real no- notebook era entertainment. That's it. Yeah, That's it. and uh, you can see how it's a little bit of escapism from like Paris Hilton sex tape or whatever was trending at Although ironically also named Paris. This was also early 2000s. And you know what? We'll always have Paris. (laughs) America and Paris were the same place in the early 2000s. You heard it here first. Probably going to be our most controversial episode. No, I stand by it. Bring me your scientists. Bring me your so-called facts. I know what I know. The two transposed and then they separated. It was a little bit like uh, Panagia. Yep. So anyway, um, so we don't agree that the movie is future-proofed. By the way, this is also the pot. This is the episode where you've both been the most stony face. Like, I can really tell how much you hated this move. Like, this is like, nope, it's bad. <laughs> no, wait, I, I also want to say I did. I enjoyed watching it, despite everything else that I've said that there was. A, I mean, despite literally fit. I mean, and I, I'm not saying this as um, an exaggeration or the way that people usually do. I genuinely felt a slight sense of nausea because I was like so cringed out by the songs that were being not throughout the whole thing but yeah Jim Broadbent's Like a Virgin song and then there's that other kind of like weird like medley love song where it's just all of the love like all these songs about love just being kind of DJed into one another. (laughs) 
Yeah, which are, which are also just some of the most banal things yeah. you could say about love. Like, I want you to quote Leonard Leonard Cohen. I always want people to quote Leonard Cohen. I want Tom Waits. I want some... <laughs> Leonard Cohen and Tom Waits. This would be a very different... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it should be... I should think like writer's group. I'm not trying to make this into the movie I would have made. <laughs> um, do you know there was one artist who refused to let Buzzlerman use his song? Can you guess who it might be? Prince. Nope. Artist formerly known as Prince. Nope. Symbol. Good guess, but no. <laughs> Michael Jackson? No. Um, this could take a while. Um, Bruce Springsteen? Nope. One more guess? Bob Dylan? Cat Stevens. Ah. It was Fathers and Sons. And apparently, so if you remember, there's there are a couple of instances that I kind of registered as being weird, which are these fleeting moments where we see Ian McGregor's father, who apparently... Uh, is really Christian, and he has one flashback, one precisely one flashback. As in, he he is he is very much in the Christian faith, not that they are actually the same person. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so there's one moment of hesitation when the Bohemians ask him to write their show, and he goes, "The problem was I couldn't stop thinking about my dad," and I was like, "Wait, what? I forgot you even." Your dad is a part of this, and there's one weird flashback never comes up again. No more hesitation. That might be because the movie was supposed to begin with this big Cat Stevens number that I think was going to be sung between Ian McGregor and the actor who plays his father. But but Cat Stevens, who's Muslim, was like, no, for religious reasons, I can't because I think it's like Ian McGregor's character's parents weren't married at the time. Like, it's, it's, it's something like that. It was like some sort of like moral issue. It wasn't. And then apparently later on, Cat Stevens did say also that it was the greatest mistake he ever made in his career. Because those songs did, like, really come back. Yeah. A lot of them I hadn't heard before exactly. as a teenager. Yeah, so Cat Stevens. Yeah, Lady Marmalade, they re-redid yeah, yeah, with exactly. um, Christina Aguilera. Yeah, exactly. And I believe it was uh, and Missy Elliott was the one who wrote th- this version. I think so, to be fact-checked. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to point out, too, is that there's obviously, like, huge – there's – there's a big homage going on to Marilyn Monroe, right? With Nicole Kidman's character, definitely uh, gentlemen prefer blondes. But that's also really weird to me because this we see this movie where Satine is essentially, really no pun intended, it's just the word that's coming to mind, consumed um, by by this life, right? Like she's unwell. Obviously, Jim Broadbent is not looking out for her. And we see her, and she keeps being like, you know, I want to be taken seriously as an actress. It's a little bit eerie, makes it seem like it's uh, done well. It's fucked up to me the way that Marilyn Monroe's like legend is used to add, I believe, some sort of pathos to Nicole Kidman's character. Um, but in fact, he doesn't really do that, right? Like I, I can see where he takes Marilyn Monroe as an influence, but to what end, really? Right? Like again, I guess you could pull that thin as a you know thin as whatever um, comparison to oh, this is about capitalism destroying art, and so art destroying the humans in it but again well i mean it's a kind of <laughs> from a meta message i think it definitely gets that across yeah that's true. <laughs> i think we're, we're given too much credit i think baz Luhrmann was just like what are a bunch of things i like and just like <laughs> like mushes them all together into something resembling story form and lets you the audience just fill in the blanks so do you think if Buzz Lerman was going to sing a song about this, it would be called These Are a Few of My Favorite Things? We know he's got the rights to Sound of Music. So. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> and old songs by Queen. Beautiful. I made I made that up. I can rhyme too. <laughs> Are you guys in love with me? Totally. Always. Oh. Forever. <laughs> um, so any last words about Moulin Rouge? Should people see this? 
again, it depends on your tolerance level. I think, yeah, I think, okay, so I think my final take on Moulin Rouge would be that it's presenting itself as just this celebration of the spectacle part of cinema. But the problem is that you can't have the spectacle without the story. It's like, you know, the Bob Dylan quote, you know, like you can't have uh, uh, with a hunk of cheese, you can't have the hunk without the cheese. Uh-huh. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> what a wordsmith. Yeah, the, no- the, the notably clear and clarifying Bob Dylan there. Um, Nobel Prize winner Bob Dylan. <laughs> Like em- empty spectacle is 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 literally just nothing. It, it's a, it's like saying you know the what would the opposite be like like a film that's just story without spectacle. The opposite would be my dinner with Andre. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. That's what it is. And I, everybody fucking hated that movie too. And you and you know what? Also, I'll, just to add to that, I actually think that the only spectacle form that you can get away with and not have story might be dance. So dance movies, I think you really can get a. They're also not that long. This movie is also really burdened by the fact that it's just too fucking long frankly but singing this kind of song over and over again isn't distracting enough and the choreography actually like except for the Roxanne bit a lot of the choreography I thought was actually lost on maybe because it's on a small screen but you don't see a lot of it right like we immediately center in on the leads and we don't see all that because a lot of the dancers actually are Moulin Rouge dancers in the movie as well that he used but it seems like kind of a waste like we don't get to see a lot of that dancing so I think that dancing you can get away with not having much story because it's so much movement you're so impressed that people can move like that this is not enough of a spectacle to not have the story part yeah, it's also something that other than the spectacle that is there in terms of the color, the, some of the CGI stuff, mm-hmm. this and that, it's not a film that makes use of being a film very well. Like you agreed. Like the camera work is bizarre. Uh the 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 script is just ineffably bad mm-hmm. and uh appropriately. And uh yeah, I, I think uh this shouldn't have been a movie this should have been a youtube video Ooh. okay well i'm i feel that we i've, I've done enough uh yucking of other people's yum because i'm sure that a lot of people <laughs> uh do really like this film and that so as further defense of it i wonder if we're almost watching it in the wrong way and that the right way because we kind of gather around and we're here kind of like delivering our kind of views on the story and kind of like if it's verisimilitude and stuff like that but if you consider it as just this huge spectacle that you're going to see to escape from yourself for a little while and to be filled with endorphins and, you know, to to look at the um, theatrical teachings of Antonin Artaud. Um, <laughs> I just bring Artaud in there. Um, that degree worth it. <laughs> um, you know, it's just this thing in which you're, you can just be enjoying the colour, enjoying the music, vaguely following along the story but really the job of the people in the audience is just to like whoop at some parts and dance at other parts and be caught up in that energy and that spectacle and be transported to another place and I think for that um, I think it it could work Um, in a movie theatre where everybody's allowed to talk and sing along and 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 just have fun and i can really imagine if i was like a little bit drunk or on drugs uh and going to see this movie with the right people at the right time i could quite enjoy it final word depends which drugs right and final final word 
I fucking love this movie and it's terrible. Two things can be true, audience, but what is never not true is the greatest thing (laughs) you'll ever, ever learn is how to love and be loved in return. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. After discussing the magnum opus that is Moulin Rouge, I would like all of us to really think about who we would choose for their respective roles in our lives amongst these three characters. The magic sitar. (laughs) The duke. And Marie, the only person who understands what what consumption is in this movie. Do you remember the heavily rouged, like, nursemaid, basically? Who who dresses uh, Nicole Kidman and apparently has, like, some shit on Jim Broadbent because she's just always, like, hovering around his shoulder. So it's Marie, the magic sitar, and the duke. Okay. (laughs) Well, wow, this is uh, this is like a deep read. This is somebody who has watched Moulin Rouge twice in <laughs> perhaps twenty eight hours. I, I, I'm no exaggeration. I told Kevin that we watched the movie today, and he was like, "So we could have watched something else." And he hasn't texted me back since I responded to that. I so also I might be in the middle of a divorce. Cheers. <laughs> so who would take Kevin's place? The yeah. magic sitter. <laughs> <laughs> Marie, who, to be honest, I don't remember. Oh, I remember her so well. Okay, that makes sense. I, I remember her because I was waiting for a line where she was like, you know, this girl must be saved. She, Her lines must have been cut. I don't think she... Oh, she has a couple of lines. She says things like, oh, ducky, it's going to be all right. Da, 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 after she finds... That's good. So she got paid. She was a, yeah, She got oh, paid yeah, more than an extra. Paid. Yeah. Oh, she got paid. Um, okay. This is very clear to me. Mm-hmm. I'll marry the Duke. If the Duke likes you, you're fine. The Duke has money. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, look, a little froggy. So he's an animal lover. <laughs> he <laughs> is generous. He gives her that enormous diamond necklace. $2.5 million, by the way, for the necklace. At the time, the most expensive piece of jewelry that had ever been used in cinema. What about Titanic? Even more than Titanic. But that's a real necklace in Titanic. <laughs> yeah, but this is a real necklace. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I believe in this, but I just, I'm su- the heart of the ocean is real. This one had a massive gem in it, plus like over a thousand diamonds and um, white gold. Like it's it's absurd. It had two security guards on it at all times during shooting. Um, well, now I just want to marry them into the necklace. Well, yeah, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, but the Duke comes with the necklace. Yeah, so full, full package, full package. Mm-hmm. He supports the arts. Yes. See, these are all good things for me. Um, the magic sitar, all fuck. It's magic. <laughs> I don't know what it can do. Nobody knows. Um, and yeah, let's explore some possibilities. Right. And let's kill Marie since until 30 seconds ago, I didn't know she existed. Yeah, okay. She probably has consumption anyway. <laughs> um, well, 30 seconds ago, I didn't know she existed, but I'm going to take a punt and marry Marie. Uh, she seems. I mean, like from what you've told me, she seems like she's being nice to Nicole Kidman. She calls her Ducky, or was that a paraphrase? It might have been a paraphrase. She seemed like a Ducky. Well, I've uh, made my bed now, so I'm gonna. Ma- I'm gonna marry. <laughs> and she probably will make the bed for you every day. She seems really caring. <laughs> Good for Marie. Um, I am just like Rachel. Gonna fuck the magic sitter because I mean, what a notch in your bedpost. Um, <laughs> I think the problem with the magic sitar is that sometimes you fuck the magic sitar and sometimes the magic sitar fucks you. <laughs> there we go. There we go. I don't even know what I mean by that. But, uh... When you watch the movie, you'll get it. 
But every time it's magic every time, <laughs> I guess. Um and so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill the Duke because I think that's the right thing to do. Um he he doesn't seem yeah, he's generous with his wealth and stuff like that. But he's he's basically the the pantomime villain of this piece, including obviously when he walks into the room. Like the, our introduction to the character when he thinks that he's going to have sex with Nicole Kidman, and he goes in and he says, "It is going to be a great pleasure for me." <laughs> <laughs> and then he twirls his pantomime villain moustache. Um, it's so broadly something else that I did really enjoy about the film because I'm a big fan of the British tradition of pantomime and it does definitely have some big pantomime energy to it, which I think, you know, particularly in the Duke's character who is, he's a, he's a terrific villain. Um, and actually I think, you know, I quite like him, but I want to kill him because I think that's the aesthetically correct thing to do. That's <laughs> what the movie wants you to yeah, do. Yeah, Baz loves that. Um, so I, I think that I'm going to agree with Chris, but I'll put here. So Marie, because I really do think I need for my partner total and unerring support on every level. Like I will need Marie to cook for me. I will need her to tell me that I'm not feeling well and I need to rest. Basically, I'm saying that I'm going to marry someone who will be my like pseudo mom. For I mean, you're making a lot of assumptions from this 20 second. <laughs> no, but I felt it. I I can't like I felt like she's the only one who cares, right? She's the only one who's there for the girls, the really there for the girls. So I love that. The magic sitar, I do want to fuck because if you remember, he uh, the sitar is obliged to always tell the truth. And I'm curious to know if I can use this. I don't I, I don't want to fuck it anymore. No, no, but here's why. But here's what we don't know, right? Is it that the sitar will let us know the truth about our enemies? Like, is it magic in that it can see things that we cannot? That could be very useful. Or is it a kind of sitar that I'm going to tell my lies and then it's going to be like, you weren't at the, blah, blah, blah. you were at the opera on Tuesday. Or is it like one of those people who like openly proclaims that they always tell the truth and then would say something like, I don't know, you look real weird when you come. Like, I was going to say, yeah, what if it just, I mean, if all you're doing is fucking it, what if it just tells the truth about you? I mean, I, I would, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm walking a, a tightrope here. <laughs> but you're doing it beautifully. No one's seeing you flinch. Keep Continue. You're almost there. Yes. The landing? Yeah. <laughs> and dismount. And uh, I've made my point. We <laughs> done. 10 out of 10. Thing like as you're fucking, what if it's just like, mm, you're putting on a few there, you know? And just, yeah. uh, it's, what if it's too honest? <laughs> it's, it always tells the truth. What if it's too honest? I really think this is an important point. Yeah, exactly. I need to know how much, like, how magical is it? What is the extent of its powers and how much control can I have over it? So asterisk. And I'm fucking killing the Duke, too, because I don't believe that this generosity is going to last more than a month or so. He's real creepy when he's like, I don't like it when anyone touches my things. You are mine. And it gets kind of rapey in that scene where he, like, rips off the necks from her. He's too unstable. And I can't, I just can't imagine a life where I have to walk on eggshells because what if the Duke wakes up and decides that I'm having breakfast in a salacious way and it must mean that I sexed the sitar last night, which is totally true, but, like, fuck, man. Like, you know, it's a magic sit. Once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Exactly. I understand that the froggy line really gets me every yeah. time. Yeah. It's also his delivery. That actor really... I'm, I'm the, the froggy line is... It's, it's one of the weirder bits in the movie. <laughs> Possibly an ad-lib where they're just sort of walking on the hill behind the Sakaika, which doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> and he goes, Oh, look, a frog. 
<laughs> but it's said with such this this genuine discovery. <laughs> I think the I think the real thing is that they're just filming this on some like studio stage with green screen yeah. around, and he's using his you know method acting skill right to, yeah. to be excited by a frog. His training, yeah, yeah, yeah relying on that Stanislavski. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what else with the degree? Well done, everybody. <laughs> um, so that is our, I believe, our merry fuck kill. Yeah. 